Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. Well, Declan, what story are you going to tell me about today? So today I'm going to be talking about John Hyde. Hyde. John Hyde. I don't know that name. I'm curious to hear what that's all about. And this is a... I don't think you are curious. (laughs) I don't think you want to be curious, I should say. You you come with some really brutal shit sometimes where I'm like, it's just gross. Okay. Yeah. It's going to be one of those gross, stop, make me cry. Ugh. No, okay. it's not going to make you. It's just gross. No. <laughs> what are you going to be telling okay. us about? I'm going to be talking about a Turkish prison escape that happened many, many years ago. And the drink that I brought to link with this story is called Escape from Alcatraz. And that drink, the ingredients are a teaspoon of ginger, freshly grated, three orange slices, half an ounce of lemon juice, freshly squeezed, one ounce of Cointreau, two ounces of rye whiskey, an ice cube. The steps are to muddle the ginger, orange slices, and lemon juice in a cocktail shaker, add the Cointreau and whiskey, shake well with ice. Then double strain that into an ice-filled old-fashioned glass and garnish with an orange slice. Okay. So are you ready? Yes. You ready to try it? Okay. I'm a little nervous, but let's go. That's pretty fucking good. That is really good, and I shouldn't have been scared. I was scared by the rye whiskey because, you know, whiskey and I have... A weird relationship but this is really good the orange really comes through what kind of and whiskey did you use i used a pendleton rye whiskey i uh i used something called tin cup i saw it at the liquor store and i i only reason i bought it is because the cap was a metal shot glass so i was like I'll, oh nice it's like 25 26 bucks i'll just i'll get it just for the shot glass whatever it was pretty yeah. good though this Pendleton is, uh, I think it was like $43. It was a little expensive, but dad Oof, really yeah. likes <laughs> whiskey. And Pendleton. so we decided let's splurge and try something new so that he could try it. And Next so. time you're at the liquor store, get a tin cup. I want to see what he thinks of it because I like it. I mean, okay. I don't really like too much whiskey though, but I've been he making has... a lot of whiskey sours with it recently. Oh, we're going to do a take on a whiskey sour soon, but that's for another episode. So spoiler (laughs) alert. Also, I did a like a lazy version and I just use orange juice instead of orange, like muddled orange. (laughs) I did the full orange slices and I muddled it and I freshly grated the ginger and I don't taste the ginger, but I feel the ginger i think i don't know 
it's very it's like cool but warming at the same time <laughs> yeah this is a really good drink probably one like of it. my favorites it's pretty damn tasty <laughs> i'm just gonna give a short history so not super lengthy but the drink was invented in chicago and was meant to pay homage to the notorious gangster Al Capone. And Al Capone was known for running a Prohibition-era booze smuggling ring, and his favorite whiskey was a Templeton rye whiskey. So originally this whiskey is supposed to be, or this drink is supposed to be made with Templeton rye. I didn't make it with Templeton rye. Okay, bad on me. Whatever. <laughs> I do not have a discerning palate, so I couldn't tell you the difference between one whiskey and another. So, me either. Um, but yes, so it is named after him. And that's why he was uh, imprisoned at Alcatraz. And so that's why it's named Escape from Alcatraz. Nice. So, I heard he had a real nice place in Alcatraz, too. Probably like did record player yeah. and extra large I room. Be surprised. So I chose this drink because the place in the story that I'm going to be talking about was compared in one of my sources to Alcatraz. So that's okay. why I picked the drink. So I'm going to set the mood on a dark night in a rundown house in the remote countryside. There are a group of men sitting around a strange looking board. The board was created by the men who are in a dire situation. The days in this house seem endless and there's no easy escape from their circumstances. Maybe the board can help them pass the time. Maybe it will show them a way to salvation. The board is a polished piece of metal with letters attached to it. Sitting on the board is an overturned glass. The men gently touch their fingers to the glass and hope it will move, but sadly it doesn't. Until one night, the glass starts to slide toward a letter and a conversation begins. How will the conversation end? Will it end in life or death? Let's find out. So before we get to that, let's first take a little trip back in time and discuss some history, specifically history about spiritualism. It was a belief that you could communicate with the spirits of dead who had died, the people who had died, and it often used a medium or person believed to be gifted with the ability to directly communicate with the souls of the dead, communicating with spirits and the practice can be dated back to as early as 1100 AD, which is surprising, but also not surprising to me. Spiritualism as a mass idea gained a lot of popularity in the mid-1800s to early 1900s. One method of communication was developed for common use in the U.S. during the late 1800s. It wasn't necessarily a new idea. It was just mass-produced and readily available. And that 
tool was marketed to the general public. It was the Ouija board. Some people call it Ouija. Mm. Some people call it a spirit board. But the Ouija board. If you don't know what it is, it's basically a board with letters, numbers, and a couple of common sayings on it like yes, no. Sometimes it has hello and goodbye. The board uses a pointer called a planchette that slides across the board to direct answers reportedly given by the spirit you are talking to. So you ask a question and supposedly the spirits answer by moving the planchette that you're touching around on the board. People use the Ouija board, place their fingers on the planchette, ask the spirits questions, and wait for the answers to be spelled out. You don't have to use a specific board and a specific planchette. Some people make their own boards and use something else that they can touch, like a glass, as a planchette. Have you ever used a Ouija board? I did when I was in high school. Mm. At a sleepover. Um, I remember thinking it was a crock of shit and then at the same time feeling scared. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I do remember that it spelled my middle name, which none of my friends knew. But it misspelled misspelled my middle name. Yeah. How How many letters was it off? Uh, one letter. Oh, it, it put an I. It put Maybe an I. Maybe that was the ghost name. Maybe I don't know. I remember just what thinking. What question like, did you ask it though? Did you ask it what's my middle name? Yes. Oh, what's my middle shit. name? And it spelled my middle name, but instead of putting a, a Y, it put an I. And oh. none of my friends were like they were spelling the letters out, and and they were like, I don't know what name that is. I said it's Layla, but it mine's spelled different. And so I think that was probably the end of us playing with the board. Cause my friends didn't know that. Oh, that's freaky. Yeah. So I mean, if I were the one controlling it, you'd think that I would have at least spelled my own name right. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But we're gonna talk about how some men some prisoners used it so oh, okay. yes Got during world else war to do one in jail that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right uh during world war one there was a turkish prison that was in such a remote and nasty place that the prison was wasn't even surrounded by fencing or barbed wire and that's where it was kind of con compared to Alcatraz because it was considered like, we don't need to do much because you can't, you're not going to escape. We're going to talk about why. Okay. Uh, the one prison last, was called, yeah. One last sidetrack. Uh, have yes. you seen the movie Midnight Express? I don't think so. That's a, it's about a Turkish prison and it mm. depicts a pretty horrible scene of it. Honestly, <laughs> it's, well, it's a fucked up movie. Maybe you can tell me when I'm done, you can tell me how it compares to this story because this is a well-known story apparently. And I'll explain later how I found this story. But um, the prison was the Yazgad prison and it was used for prisoners of war, especially ones that were believed to be prone uh, to escape. 
The prison had once been a private home and the owners had been killed. In 1916, it started being used to house prisoners of war. Escape was highly discouraged by using psychological tactics to put fear in the minds of prisoners. They didn't have to put barbed wire because they were like, these guys aren't going to escape because we're going to tell them it's so bad. Yes. The prisoners were led to believe there were hundreds of thousands of thieving gangs that roamed the area, which would likely kill them if encountered. So if one guy escaped, he was going to encounter these gangs that would likely kill him and steal everything he had. So why should he leave? And if that wasn't enough, they came up with another punishment and it was called strafing. Basically, it was a threat that if, say, you and I are in prison together and you escape and I stay there, well, I'm the one that's going to get punished because I didn't prevent you from escaping. So I could be tortured or even executed for your escape. And the prisoners didn't want to leave their fellow prisoners to be punished if they left. So they were like, men of honor, we're going to stay instead of putting you through hell because we got to get out. So. Yeah. That's fucked up. Yep. That's like some football coach technique. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, if someone fucks up, everybody got to run. Yep. Yep. Exactly. (laughs) Not cool. So the prisoners spent all their time with each other and had become friends to some degree. They attempted to entertain themselves by using old packing crates. They built furniture. They made things with it basically to make their lives more comfortable. One of the prisoners at Yazgad was E.H. Jones. He was an officer in the Indian Army who was captured in April 1916. One day during his captivity, he received a postcard from his aunt who suggested the prisoners use a Ouija board to entertain themselves. She'd used one and she was like, life must be shitty in there. Maybe you could do this to like pick up your spirits kind of stuff. Yeah. Pick up some spirits, you mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the prisoners created their own Ouija board using salvage materials. They attached letters to the board and used an overturned drinking glass as the planchette. The prisoners were bored and tired of each other's company. I mean, <laughs> yeah. why wouldn't you be? You got nothing else to do in there. And you're like, dude, I can't hear this story about you and whoever any longer. You've told it 20 <laughs> times. Right. So they thought they would use it, the Ouija board, to communicate with people outside the prison walls and hear some other boring stories. For weeks, the prisoners attempted using the Ouija board Without success. One night, Jones decided to make the Ouija board work. He was really good at like spatial memorization and things, so he memorized the layout of the board. With his eyes closed, he subtly started guiding the glass to respond to questions. The first spirit he conjured was a female female named Sally. And over time, he conjured more spirits. Conjured, right? Not actually. Okay. He, it wasn't real. Spoiler alert. It wasn't real. 
<laughs> well, yeah, if he, he has, had the spatial awareness of the board. Right. <laughs> yeah. He had it memorized and he's like, hey, we got nothing else to do with our time. Let's at least not be bored. And so people got excited about it. It Their whole interest in it was renewed. Everyone started getting excited about talking with the spirits. And there were several people that they talked to through the Ouija board. I would have made a lot of money off that gaff. I would have been like, hey, I can talk to your dead relatives for you and respond like what they want to hear. Like pretend to be a medium. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what, what did my dad say? He says, yep. I love you. <laughs> oh, my God. He totally did love me. It's amazing that you would know that. <laughs> getting free Uh, cigarettes and some fucking muffins yep well jones didn't have the heart to tell everyone that he'd been faking it the whole time because he didn't want to bring everybody's you know mood down and everything so he just continued the game it he was believed by fellow prisoners as well as the prison guards to be a medium for the spirits One day, one of the Turkish captors asked if the board could be used to find buried treasure. So funny that you mentioned money. There just happened to be a legend that a former resident of the area had buried treasure and the Turkish men were anxious to find the treasure. So they were like, hey, bro, can you talk to the spirits and help us find the treasure? And he's like, you Bet I can do that Wait, for you. Sorry, I don't. I think I missed this part. What was like the timeline? What year is this? World War One, nineteen sixteen. God, people were fucking stupid. <laughs> well, but but again, this is like kind of the time where everybody was getting into the idea that you could talk to spirits. People had been doing it for hundreds of years you know, talking about it for centuries. But in the 1800s, right before this, it started getting like this mass acceptance and like people would go to seances and they would hold them and they were trying to find ways. That's kind of why the Ouija board was invented. Like it was a easy way for people to talk to the spirits because supposedly anybody could use it you didn't have to have special abilities so you know kind of prime time for this sort of thing so jones decided to use the legend and everyone's belief in his spirit communication abilities towards a plan for escape if done correctly jones thought he could escape without his fellow prisoners being punished but Jones needed help for his plan to work, so he brought in a fellow prisoner named C.W. Hill. Hill was an officer with the Australian military, and he happened to be a pretty good amateur magician. For months, Jones and Hill worked on a plan together, building the confidence in the captors that the spirits would lead them to the treasure. If they started, like, if the, if the prison guards were like, mm, something's not right, they'd do something to make it seem like To make them believe again, essentially. Jones used his memorization skills and Hill used his magician skills with sleight of hand to further the belief in the medium abilities. 
They even developed a code language to allow them to communicate covertly with each other. So like they would say a phrase that meant one thing to them and nobody else would know that it meant something else. <laughs> that, these guys, listen, if someone can <laughs> actually break out of jail like in an intelligent way, I think we should just let them go. <laughs> if they're not like violent criminals, they're right. just like in there for tax evasion or something. Right. Let them go. Well, let them, these are prisoners everybody. of war. These are, you know, oh. during World War One, so yeah. they weren't even. I mean, they're not I real. They didn't do anything on. wrong. They're just they were they were fighting for their country to, you know, eradicate bad guys. So yeah, they just happened to be caught by said bad guys. Wow, yeah. that that's so impressive. <laughs> oh, it, it gets better. It gets better. Okay, because Jones thought. I can't just have one plan because if shit goes down, I've got to have a backup plan. So there was a plan B. It was a good idea because the night before the escape plan, shit fell apart. They were worried about being killed for the deception that they had perpetrated for over a year. So this went on for over a year that they were like slowly reeling everybody in like here's what's going on. We're going to find your buried treasure. It fell apart because a fellow inmate had misunderstood something that happened and he thought he was protecting Jones and Hills and he revealed something about the plan and it like just everything fell apart. So, but they had done such a good job convincing everyone about their abilities um, that it it didn't end up leading to their deaths. It could have, but, you know, they immediately moved on to plan B. Probably resulted in them getting beaten, I'd imagine. It, I mean, it could have, it could have killed them, but they were like, okay, well, plan A just went to shit, so here's plan B. So, at that time in history, it was believed that spirit mediums, people who could talk with the, with the spirits of the dead, could go insane due to their gift. So you're talking with spirits and it makes you crazy. Yeah, that was plan know. B. Yep. Well, they discussed psychological problems with one of the other prisoners who just happened to be a doctor. So... The doctor is feeding Jones and Hill information about like, oh, when people go crazy, these are the like things how to that. It. Yes. Oh. I'm not sure if the doctor knew that he was feeding them this information for their plan B, or if he was just you know casually talking about, yeah, when people are institutionalized for being crazy, this is the shit they say, and they're like, cool, bro, thanks for the deets, you know. I just want to say something about the prison system. Like if someone goes in there for like a petty crime, they're just in there with a bunch of smart criminals who eventually yeah. got caught. So they're just learning all this information on yes. how to break laws better than they did before. Right. Which <laughs> is like the show that I recommended. The sprung show. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> where he learned all the stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he was able to get crucial information that they used with their insanity plan. Since they had successfully proven their medium gifts to their captors, they were able to convince the captors that all that spirit chatting had made them insane. Jones and Hill were then transferred to an insane asylum. Yes. They, they had to use the knowledge that they got from their uh, fellow prisoner, the doctor, to help them further their appearance of insanity while in the asylum. So they're having to not only convince lay people now that they're crazy, they, they, had, to pre- they had to make sure that the psychiatrists in the facility believed they were crazy. But they That's did. That's impressive. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, the conditions in the asylum were just as bad, if not worse, in the prison. Yeah. No you shit. know, and it was pretty nasty in there. But they eventually were sent home and went on to lead full lives afterwards. Both men wrote autobiography about their experiences and their escape plan. And that is how a Ouija board allowed two prisoners of war to escape prison. Do you know what the book is called? That sounds like an interesting read. Um, the Jones's book is called The Road to Endor. Um, I can't okay. remember what Hill's book is. But I think Hill's book talked a little bit more about like his overall life, not just about the the Okay. The Turkish prison plan, basically. So, yeah. And you can actually get it on Amazon. Like, I think it was just a, like under $5 or something. Probably go get a free Audible subscription and <laughs> listen to it. Not, I'm not sure if it's been <laughs> made into an audio book. Okay. Yeah, that, um, it sounds very similar to that movie the movie is just a lot more graphic so gina i'm talking to you you should watch this movie you should watch it it's very graphic she's not gonna watch it now she might have if you haven't said gina watch it She's definitely not going to. I'll update you on whether or not she watches it, but I I predict she'll be like, "Fuck no, Declan, shut." There's a lot of there's a lot of graphic stuff in that movie, but it's a Ugh. it's a really good movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh man. Well. Tell me all about your brutal story. Okay. So John Hyatt was born in Stamford, Lincolnshire on July 24th, 1909 to parents John and Emily Hyatt. His parents were engineers and were prominent members of the conservative Protestant community. During his childhood, he started playing piano and became interested in classical music even attending some local concerts. 
In his 20s, John started working in advertising and insurance, but was later fired for stealing from a cash box. Ooh. Yeah, don't do that. This was only the start of John's criminal career. After Just he start was somewhere. Fired, yep. <laughs> after he was fired, John learned how to forage car documents and married 23-year-old Beatrice Hammer. However, the two didn't last long together because John was arrested for fraud. And while he was in jail, Beatrice gave birth to their daughter. However, she put the child up for adoption and left John. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I think in the early 1900s, that probably was like how you did things. Like, you, I don't think it, being a single mom was like a thing back then. It was probably yeah. very frowned upon. Especially in and religious like, communities. If he's in jail for a couple of years, too, like... Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. John pretended to be a salesman selling fraudulent stocks from deceased clients and was discovered when he misspelled the town his supposed office was located in, which resulted in a four-year prison sentence. Oh, jeez. Well, while serving his time, he had one thing on his mind getting back at the victims who had accused him. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, because it's their fault. Okay. He became fascinated with French serial killer Georges Alexander Serret, who disposed of his bodies using sulfuric acid. Oh, more acid. After Ugh. being released from prison, John ran into an old boss of his, William McSwan, at a pub. John was jealous of the life that his former employer lived, so he decided he was going to murder him. John, John lured his boss into his basement and hit him over the head with a lead pipe, killing him. John shoved his body into an old oil drum and filled it with concentrated sulfuric acid. John returned the drum. John returned to the drum two days later and discovered that most of his boss's body had been dissolved and he dumped the remains into a manhole. <sighs> Gross. He told the McSwan family that their son had fled the country in hopes of avoiding the draft into the service. John began living in McSwan's house and took over the job he was working with his parents. So his parents owned a couple properties and John would collect rent from the properties. Oh. That was John's job. Or okay. not John. That was Mick Swan's job that John is now working. Okay. He lured the Mick Swan family over to his house under the guise that William had returned home. But when the Mick Swans arrived, John hit them both over the head with a blunt object, killing them both. So he, he killed their son and then he killed yep. them. Wow, exactly. He okay. disposed of their bodies the same way he did their sons. So he just shoved them right into an oil drum and filled it full of acid. A couple oh, days get later. Get that he... much acid. This is That's probably a... back when you could just buy it if you had a good connection. Like, I think you need some permits and stuff to buy that now. I don't know. Oh my. So okay. John began cashing the checks made out to the McSwan family to fund his gambling addiction. Okay. So he was taking all those checks. He had sold some of their stuff. His main like, reason for killing them was money. 
basically. Right. When the McSwan money was running low, he determined that he needed to kill and rob someone else. Sure. He met Archibald and Rose Henderson when he was pretending to be interested in a property they were selling. They invited him over to their house to play piano for uh, one of their parties. And while John was at their house, he stole Archibald's pistol with a plan on using it in his next murder. So we just, while, while at their house, he snuck into their room and found Archibald's pistol. So he stole it. Nice. After he had determined his plan, he rented a workshop and moved the oil drums and acid from William McSwan's house. He invited Archibald to his workshop to show him a non-existent invention that John was working on. But when he arrived, he shot Archibald in the head and st- with the stolen revolver. Wow. He told Rose that Archibald was sick, and when she arrived to check on her husband, he shot her as well. Oops. He put both of their bodies into oil drums and covered them in acid. He then sold all their possessions except for their dog and their car, which he kept. Okay. Which I is... thought you were going to say something bad happened to the dog. <laughs> no. So... No, he just took this okay. family's dog that he just okay. murdered. Uh, At this well... point. Okay. At this point, John enjoyed his killings and sought them out. Sure. One of the people who were living at the hotel he rented died, and John knew that he had a wife. John didn't kill him, but the guy died. And okay. John was kind of friends with him, so he knew that he had a wife that now is missing a husband. So John portrayed himself as an engineer when he approached Olive Duran Deacon, widow of John Duran Deacon. He invited her over to the workshop to sh- show her a new invention that he was working on, which didn't exist. And when she arrived, John did what he normally does and shot her in the back of the neck. He took all the valuables from her person and shoved her into an oil drum. Wow. Two days after she went missing, a friend of Olive reported her missing. Since detectives knew that John was uh, speaking with Olive, the detectives decided to search his rental properties, which included a uh, little hotel like slash apartment thing. Like it was like a long term hotel. And the shop that he was renting, which contained all the oil drums and acid. Inside his workshop, they found cleaning receipt for Olive's coat, like a dry cleaner receipt. Mm. And paperwork relating to the McSwans and the Hendersons. So they found all this shit from every like person he killed that he just had in his workshop. Okay. When detectives searched his apartment, they discovered a partial human foot human gallstones, and 28 pounds of human body fat that had been poured into a giant rubble pile in his backyard. John was arrested and taken into custody and was questioned. He was being interrogated when he confessed to the McSwans, the Hendersons, and the Durant Deacons as well as three other murders that detectives were not able to prove. When asked why he did it, John replied with, Well, if I told you the truth, you would not believe me. It sounds too fantastic to believe. 
John pled insanity and claimed that he was obsessed with drinking his victim's blood. He was quoted as saying, I saw before me a forest of crucifixes, which gradually turned into trees. At first, there appeared to be dew or rain dripping from the branches. But as I approached, I realized it was blood. The whole forest began to rise and became dark. A man went from each tree catching the blood in a cup and approached me saying, drink, he said, and I was unable to move. It only took 29 minutes for a jury to determine that John was guilty, and Mr. Justice Humphreys sentenced him to death by hanging. On August 10th, 1949, he was executed. Yep. Yay. Hurrah! Thank God. This, oh. His nickname was the Acid Bath Murderer. Well, of course. I was going to ask you if he had a, a nickname. Yeah, that was his nickname, the Acid Bath Murderer. Which is fairly fitting. But the reason he rented that uh, the shop is because it had a floor drain in it for like oil and like different fluids and stuff. So that's where he dumped the bodies. Yep. Ugh. Gross. I want to know what that shop smelled like. (laughs) You don't want to know what that because it there's no way it smelled. It was bad. You yeah, know but it if was you bad. if you know what that smell is, then sometimes like you ever smell something on the like you're driving with the windows down, you're like, mm-hmm. what the yeah. fuck is that? I sometimes yeah. I think like, what if that's a dead body, and I just don't know what dead bodies smell like. I think you would know. I, I think decomp would be. Before. Yeah, I've smelled like but, a like a really rotten steak before. I don't know if that is would be a similar smell, but sulfur has a very gross smell it smells like rotten eggs so i would assume sulfuric acid probably has a sulfury smell to it and then put in their human decomp too it it's i don't i don't want to know it's going to be gross i probably would never be able to unsmell it it would probably be everywhere in my nose for the rest of my life no thank you yeah no kidding. <laughs> I smell things based on suggestions sometimes. No joke. Dad and I were in the car the other day and we were talking about pizza. Out of nowhere, I full on smelled pizza. And I asked him and he's like, no, it does not smell like pizza in the car. I'm like, I 100% smell pizza right now. that's that's so it was weird it was weird as hell so i would smell that for the rest of my life 24 7 it would be (laughs) awful no thank you no 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 No. Do you have a chaser for us? I do have a chaser. And my chaser today is based on the story that I told. So the Turkish prison escape or the Turkish prisoner, Khan, I actually heard about from a show that I was watching. And the show is my recommendation. And the show is called Leverage. 
It's an older show. I'd have to look it up on IMDb about when it came out, but there's a recent spinoff series called Leverage Redemption. And basically it's a group of people who are con artists. Some of them, uh, like one lady's a massive con artist. One of the guys is like the muscle and he fights bad guys. And one person is like really good at computer hacking and everything. And then there's a master thief in there that she can like crack safes and stuff like that. But basically they, they help people who have been wronged by like insurance companies or big bad corporations that are screwing people over and they come in and work a con to make things right for the victims and it's it's a good show i think originally it was on tnt but now it's on um amazon prime the new oh, okay. series is on Amazon Prime, and I think you can get all of the previous show seasons. Uh, it's it's just a really good show. It's funny to watch, and if you like shows that are like heist shows in style, this one has that kind of feel to it, where they like lay out a plan and then they show like the process of the plan and. It's always getting one over on the bad guys. So I recommend that show, and that's my chaser today. Yeah, What's your chaser? Really my chaser is a story that I found on a website called Board Panda. And it's Board talking Panda. about okay. a Russian couple from Moscow who uh, adopted a three-month-old orphaned grizzly bear cub. Oh. Yeah, so he was Wait. found in the woods by some hunters, and he didn't have a mom. And so this couple adopted him 23 years ago, and he's been living with them ever since. He likes to watch TV with them on the couch, which I want to know where they get a couch that could support a full-grown grizzly bear that's like, like, yeah. let me see if it's a, it's, he's probably like, 200 kilograms. I don't know what that is in pounds. It's probably like, oh, I think they're like look. 600 pounds. Bears are big. But yeah, he likes to sit on the TV, uh, sit on the couch and watch TV. He's apparently very sociable. And uh, he eats 25 kilograms of fish and vegetables and eggs every day. And he enjoys a cup of tea. Oh, he, he drinks tea? Yes, and oh. one of his favorite activities is gardening with his adoptive parents. Oh, that is so sweet. <laughs> yes, and uh, if you're on YouTube, I'll put some pictures of him up. That he's a very adorable bear. That's awesome. <laughs> so, two hundred kilograms is four hundred and forty pounds. That that's, must be a that's steel a, couch because it might be a steel. If I put four hundred pounds couch. on my couch and fucking break in half. Yeah. After that, I was worried that you are gonna say something bad, like that the grizzly bear got like something bad happened. So I'm glad that everybody's like still getting uh, they, along, and he's a nice, friendly grizzly bear. Yeah, his mom died or something, and hunters found him alone, and they're like, "Oh, 
you guys want this bear? And they're like, we'll take him. That's so sweet. Yes. He's so cute. I'm looking at pictures of him right now on the other screen, and he's a big cutie. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I liked your prison escape story. That was super interesting. Oh. I'm surprised I've never heard that story before. I can't say that I liked your story. But good job for telling it. He got yes. He already deserved. I, they should have put yeah. him in Astrid like alive. That should be his punishment. Yeah. That'd be some good like a smack yes. in the face to him. I'm on board with that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you, bud. Nice talking to you too. Thanks everybody for listening. All right. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.